Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now covers the Patriots for Nesson. He is back again. It is Zach Cox. Zach, congratulations, man. You actually have, I don't want to say football games, obviously, but you have actual football that you're covering right now. I mean, you got to be relieved as somebody that covers the team. It's been a couple months now. Man, I am very relieved. Uh, As you alluded to there, this is the bare minimum of, of actual football, I would say. There's no pads. There's no live contact out there, but... Uh, especially after an offseason like this, where it was just so consumed by by Mac Jones and Bailey Zappi and Bill Belichick and all these kind of rumors and speculation and, and behind the scenes drama and whatnot. Uh, it is very nice. And it has been very nice these last couple of weeks to actually just get to go outside and and watch some people in in helmets throw a football around. No doubt. And especially you get a lot of material post draft. But then after the draft, you're like, OK, we get a while before we have any sort of people on the football field to cover. So it's nice from that perspective as well. And it's perfect for me because the Celtics season ended abruptly. So at least you get some Patriots to talk about. And the Red Sox, they're not playing particularly great baseball either. So I'm glad that we have some Patriots to talk about. So it does feel like a lot of good vibes coming from Patriots OTAs. I'm sure a lot of teams feel this way, but it does feel like more so this year than last year. So I want to start with one of the big stories. We saw the video, you tweeted it out too, where the ridiculous grab from Christian Gonzalez during drills. And by the way, if you didn't see this, the video I'm alluding to, please go on social media and see this because you're going to be very excited if you're a Patriots fan. Kyle Duggar, you had the quote in your story at Nesson, Zach. He said, it's pretty effortless just the way that he does everything, the way that he moves in and out of breaks. He runs easy. It just looks very light, very fluid. Now, you mentioned the numbers from the combine. The vert was 415, third among corners. Broad was 11-1. The guy ran a 4-3-8. And I was already very excited about the pick. And we talked a couple of months ago, you and I, we were ranking the position groups. But one thing that sticks out to me about Gonzalez is we look at corners across the NFL and he falls to 17. We've seen a lot of these guys produce really early on. So give us an idea of being down there, seeing him in person finally after 
going back and watching the film from him in the draft, does it jump off the page when you see him sort of work in person, not in game, but in practice, so to speak? It does. Uh, And I want to... Uh, I want to add a caveat to start. We've been able to see him exactly once. Uh, He wasn't there at the first open OTA. So we've seen one non-padded practice of this guy. Uh, I always warn people uh, against taking anything from OTAs really at face value. Uh, Things get a lot different once the pads come on and once you start playing some real football. But all of the early returns have been very positive. You can... He just looks as advertised on the field uh, in the the limited glimpse we've gotten. Uh, he's got the size that they didn't really have at the position last season. Uh, he's really fluid. He's really athletic. Just hearing some of his teammates talk about him, uh, you get that same kind of sense. You you mentioned that quote um, from Kyle Duggar the other day. Uh, his teammates are are impressed with him so far. Uh, Devin McCourty even was on uh, Good Morning Football this morning, and he said, "Yeah, I talked to some of these guys in the locker room." Uh, and they don't really like putting a rookie above uh, kind of players who've already established themselves in the NFL, but they're very impressed with what they've seen so far from Christian Gonzalez. Uh, we saw him out there on the field slotting right in with the first team defense uh, too early to kind of officially install him as as the cornerback one or, or even as a starter. But so far, it does look like they have him on that uh, kind of week one starter track that Cole Strange was on last season uh, on the offensive line. So uh, again, very early, too early for any kind of real conclusions. But uh, I think everything so far from Christian Gonzalez has been uh, pretty overwhelmingly positive. Well, I'm ready to anoint him after seeing that grab <laughs> on social media. And based on the numbers that we saw at the com- combine, I'm, I'm already ready for it. But anyway, so we've seen a lot of these young guys, as I was alluding to, come in and thrive right away at that cornerback position. Sauce Gardner last year was the number one coverage grade, according to Pro Football Focus. Patrick Sertain was second, and he was part of the 2021 class. So we've seen this where these corners coming from the collegiate level are having an impact really on in their NFL careers. And that was the Patriots defense was really good last season. All the numbers would tell you that. But there was sort of that missing piece when you went up against the elite receivers of the world. That's when the Patriots struggled, the Justin Jeffersons, the Stephon Diggs. And I'm not saying that he's going to go in there and he's going to shut these guys down right away. As we said, it's barely he's barely gotten his opportunity in the NFL yet. Right. But we know that Bill Belichick in the past has loved playing that press man. And you wonder now, sort of like when we think about, hey, the number one receiver opens up things for an elite offense, right, where everybody else is getting single coverage. I wonder if this allows Bill to sort of dial stuff up defensively now that he has that guy that. Throughout his tenure, when he had these great defenses, whether it be Ty Law, whether it be Revis, Asante Samuel, right, Stephon Gilmore, he's always had that guy. And I'm wondering if this makes the Patriots defense even more dangerous heading into 2023, that the one position you needed, you may have just found it in the draft. Uh, yeah, and maybe even trend a little bit back toward the the kind of man-heavy defenses that they played for so long that they've really gotten away from in the last couple of years, you look at the last two, three seasons, you're seeing this Patriots defense play a lot more zone defense than they had previously. And I think some of that is just personnel based, especially last season when they didn't have that kind of number one shutdown type guy. You can't tell Jonathan Jones to just man up on Stefan Diggs every play and take him away. I like Jonathan Jones as a player. I think he had a pretty good season overall last year. And uh, I think he's still going to be a good piece in this Patriots secondary, but when he's your number one guy, it sort of limits what you can do 
defensively. So if Christian Gonzalez can become that player relatively early, and again, it looks like the Patriots do expect him to play a significant role pretty much right from the jump, uh, then I agree. It definitely opens up a lot more possibilities for this Patriots defense. And and it's kind of a, a different situation because we haven't seen a cornerback like this come into New England in over a decade. I mean, he's only the second uh, first round cornerback the Patriots have drafted under Bill Belichick, the last one being Devin McCourty way back in 2010. Uh, so you don't really have much of a, uh, a track record for, okay, when a first round cornerback comes in in New England, this is how Bill Belichick usually tends to kind of work him in. Uh, so it's going to be really fascinating to see how this whole Gonzalez situation takes shape. But even with somebody like Jack Jones last year, he was a fourth round pick, wasn't a starter to start the season, but he was their third cornerback and he played a lot. And he was a guy who uh, was not nearly as uh, highly touted and as athletic uh, as Gonzalez is. So, uh, yeah, I think expectations are and should be uh, very high for him this season. All right, so you mentioned Jack Jones. So the rest of this cornerback group, you had the article up at Nesson that the suspension for Jack Jones is over after reportedly missing his rehab stuff last year after he injured the knee and missed the remainder of the season. Panda Jack, as my boss calls him, the Panda Express incident that he had back <laughs> when he was in college. But anyway, if, if you haven't heard that story, just go look it up. But anyway, so last year, you look at him, PFF had him ranked as their second corner in terms of coverage grades in that rookie class behind Sauce Gardner, obviously. The rating against when targeted was third. And then you have, as you mentioned, Jonathan Jones, who we don't want him covering number one receivers. He can't really do that. But he was taking some first team reps yesterday on the or two days ago on the outside as well with Christian Gonzalez. But then Jack Jones goes out there. He goes on the outside as well. It does feel like if you look at it, Christian Gonzalez, and I know that they're not going to say it right away, but he's going to be their number one corner on the outside. And then I think it's an interesting decision to make because when we look at Jonathan Jones, this guy was really, really good when he was in the slot and he's a very versatile player. And I give him credit being overtaxed as the number one corner last year, but he's really good in the slot. So I think the best case scenario for the Patriots would be if Jack Jones could be that number two corner on the outside. What are the chances you think it plays out that way? Obviously, Jack Jones is going to get opportunities in training camp and we're still a long time away from that. But how likely is that scenario, do you think? I think that's the ideal scenario. Uh, if if you're you're talking about kind of what you would want to see from a Patriots defense, uh, it's Christian Gonzalez and Jack Jones as those two starting outside cornerbacks, and it's Jonathan Jones back in the slot with guys like Marcus Jones and Miles Bryant kind of working their way in uh, in different packages. Uh, I'm not sure if that is what they have planned. Uh, we haven't seen much uh, of Jones of Jonathan Jones rather in the slot so far this spring. Again, very small sample size, but uh, just based on his track record throughout his career and the kind of skill sets uh, of Gonzalez and Jones and Jack Jones, uh, I think that's what you want. Um, with Jack Jones, though, it's it's sort of a, a volatile situation. Uh, yeah. I mean, this guy at times last year, he looked like a, a future pro bowler. He was PFF's number one ranked corner for five or six straight weeks in the middle of the season. Uh, he had that pick six against Aaron Rodgers early in the year, had that really uh, athletic interception against Detroit, I believe, uh, also early on. But then you have the injury, you have the suspension. This is also a guy that's really gotten in trouble at every stop he's been at, going back yeah. to Arizona State uh, and then USC before that. So uh, it, it's a situation where he you need him to buy in, you need him to sort of, keep himself out of trouble and be kind of locked into the program. Uh, 
Um, and I'm sure the Patriots, that's going to be a big determination for them. It's can we trust this guy to be a starting cornerback that we can rely on, rely on week in and week out? Uh, I'm sure that's something that they're uh, attempting to figure out right now and this summer. But yeah, if you're talking about what you would want from that starting three, uh, I would say it's definitely Gonzalez and Jack Jones outside and then Jonathan Jones back in the slot. Yeah, that's a great point on Jack Jones, because if you think about it, if he really didn't have all these off the field issues at the collegiate level and even his rookie year with the Patriots, I mean, going back to what his profile was coming out of the high school level, he should have been a first round pick or at least yeah. a second round pick, right, based on the talent. So but I will say this, I am getting awfully excited about the defense when you draft a guy like Keon White, you have Christian Gonzalez thinking about Jack Jones and Jonathan Jones. Could he move back in the slot? You have Uche. Barmore, could it be year three instead of year two? I thought he was going to have the year two jump. Obviously, he was dealing with injuries. I know he got into it at practice at one point with Cole Strange. But just from a talent perspective, Zach, it feels like, man, they have a lot there where I feel like they could be a really, really elite defense. And it's just a matter of, hey, let's see what they look like once the season begins. But we know this division is loaded with offensive personnel. The Patriots defense, I mean, top to bottom, it's a really good group. Yeah, it is. And I think the Patriots feel that way as well, just based on how they approached uh, free agency uh, and the draft. Their approach in free agency was essentially bring back every single player from defense from last year. Obviously, they did not keep Devin McCourty because he retired, uh, and that's going to be a significant hole that they'll have to fill. It's probably the single biggest question facing this Patriots defense coming into this year. But uh, the only other defensive free agent who left was Joan Williams, who didn't even play at all last year. So it's basically been a keep the band together approach. Uh, and then you saw them go out in the draft and use their top three picks on three potential impact defenders. We already talked about Gonzalez. You mentioned Keon White there. And then Marte Mop, who uh, their third round pick, kind of a linebacker safety hybrid. We don't know exactly how he's going to be used. We've seen him pl- play both like inside linebacker and free safety so far this spring, uh, which usually isn't a, a combo you see from too many players. So going to be interesting to see what Bill Belichick does with him. Uh, but this, the Patriots do have high hopes for this defense. Uh, it's pretty obvious that they liked the setup that they had last year. Um, and they should. I mean, they finished, I believe, third in, in DVOA defensively last year. Uh, the one kind of issue for them was when they were facing some of those higher powered offenses, better quarterbacks, more talented wide receivers. They didn't have the same success as they did when they were facing Zach Wilson and, and Sam Ellinger, as you would expect. So uh, that's going to be the the kind of challenge for them, the, the concern that they're going to have to um, answer this year is can they have that same kind of success in a division like this that theoretically, barring injury, you're going to be taking on well, you have six games against Josh Allen, uh, Tua and the Dolphins, and then Aaron Rodgers. So it's a difficult road. It's going to be a difficult schedule for them. Uh, but I do think that this defense has the potential to be one of the best in the NFL. Yeah, that's the big test, because every time last year they went up against a good quarterback, it felt like they lost even Justin Fields. They lost to Justin yeah. Fields last year, who wouldn't be categorized as good yet, although I think there's a lot of potential there. So when you mentioned Marte Mapu, it made me think of one of the quotes you had in a story from about Mapu, but Kyle Duggar had the quote where he said, the safety and linebacker positions def- definitively are interchangeable depending on what packages we're in, what personnel's on the field. They're definitely interchangeable, so learning both is essential. And he's talking about Mapu's growth as a player here. 
And this is interesting to me because we've heard this before with Bill Belichick's defense, like the idea that they want to be switchable, versatile, almost like a basketball team, right? Where they want to switch everything defensively, like that type of stuff. And it's interesting if you look at the pieces, Duggar, of course, Adrian Phillips, Jabril Peppers, Jalen Mills now playing more safety and in the slot, of course, he came back as a safety. Joshua Bloodsoe, a six-round pick a couple of years ago. And obviously, not having McCourty is a massive thing, not just his play on the field, but the leadership as well. But I was looking at it. Duggar, Phillips, Peppers, all similar in terms of the skill sets. Obviously, Duggar is way better than, he's better than Phillips, of course, but there's a pecking order there. Duggar is clearly the best guy. But my point is, when you look at it, and now that Mapu's in the mix as well, it feels like, is this what they've been trying to build up to with that safety linebacker role, sort of kind of being a hybrid thing where those guys can all kind of be interchangeable? It feels like for a couple of years now, they've been working towards this, and maybe now they're actually here, that they feel like they have enough pieces when it comes to that. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, I think this has been something that's already been a staple of their defense in the last couple of years. They've had uh, Kyle Duggar, Adrian Phillips, um, Jabril Peppers, all are essentially pseudo linebacker slash safeties. They basically play both positions. Uh, the big question in my mind with Mapu when he came in was whether he was going to be a safety who also plays linebacker like those other three players are, or whether he was going to be a linebacker who also plays safety. Uh, it's kind of a, a semantic uh, distinction there, but but I do think there is a difference where between what their kind of primary positions are. Uh, but I think that losing Devin McCourty, uh, it's going to be a significant loss for this Patriots team, especially from a leadership uh, and especially a communication standpoint, because he was the guy who was calling all of the defensive signals on the field. He was the one wearing the green dot. So somebody else is ha- going to have to take on that role. But I think not having him could make this Patriots defense even more unpredictable uh, and versatile. You, you just look at the collection of players that they've put together uh, even some of the the cornerbacks that we mentioned. I mean, Jonathan Jones has played safety in the past. Marcus Jones has played safety. Uh, Miles Bryant's played safety. They basically have an entire defense of players who can play three or four different spots. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's kind of their plan to replace McCourty this year. Uh, I doubt they'll have any one player who's going to be uh, who they go to and say, all right, you're now going to play 98% of snaps this year and you're going to call the defensive plays. Go for it, Jalen Mills or, or Kyle Duggar or whoever that may be. I, I highly doubt that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be a situation where they just tap into that versatility even more and you have 9, 10, 11 defensive backs cycling through different positions and, and kind of doing what they can to uh, confuse opposing offenses. Now, whether that's the the proper route, whether you want kind of just so many versatile guys or you want a couple of guys that are have a little bit higher ta- talent level. Uh, I guess that's a debate you can have, but uh, I'm very interested to see what kind of combinations they come with, come up with on the back end, because so far this spring, there's really no clear favorite uh, to replace Devin McCourty based on what we've seen so far. I find that interesting, the McCourty angle, because you knew where McCourty was going to be on the field. Now, he's really good at his position, but the defense always kind of knew where he was going to be. And if McCourty's not on the field and you have, say, Mapu's on the field and Duggar's on the field and Phillips is on the field, you could technically blitz any of those guys, right? And we saw Duggar last year as a pass rusher. He was relatively productive, right, in terms of you compare him against the rest of the safeties in the league. So maybe that is it. Maybe the... They don't have the definitive replacement for McCourty. They're just going to try to be more versatile, which I'm all for it. And you could probably afford to do that more this year than last year. 
uh, start going back to where we started with Christian Gonzalez. If you do have, if your cornerback play is better than it was a year ago. So I'm fascinated to see what they come up with. Now, speaking of Mapu, I love the Patriots draft. I want to be abundantly clear about that. And the value of trading down, getting Gonzalez, and then taking Keon White in the second round when there was murmurs, at least, that the Patriots would consider him at 17, but you properly evaluated, hey, now you should probably wait a little bit to get Keon White, take Christian Gonzalez, and perfect execution by Bill where he says, I'm reading the board. I know that Gonzalez is going to fall to me. That was outstanding. And even if he didn't, Jackson Smith and Jigba was on the board too. So he set himself up there. It was a really smart move by Belichick in the draft because we criticize him all the time, but we got to give him credit when they make the right stuff moves, I should say. And then I like the six round flyer on Kayshawn Booty, a really talented player, dominated the SEC two years ago. Demario Douglas, okay, super fast guy. Maybe he's involved in the return game, gadget guy. I liked everything. The one pick that I was sort of critical with was Mapu. And the reason for this is just because I felt like you had a couple tight ends on the board at the time that, look, maybe those guys, maybe they just didn't like, it was Tucker Craft and Darnell Washington. Maybe they didn't like either one of those guys. And I know Daniel Jeremiah said that Mapu was his favorite player in the entire draft, and he obviously does this for a living. So he has a pretty good idea of how good these guys are. I just felt like you could have used those resources on a different position, but we knew that Bill really liked him. And I know he's been limited in terms of the injury, the peck thing in the offseason. But it, as little as you've been able to see, what do you make of him? Like, is is he really going to be able to fit into this versatile role that we've been talking about? Uh, yeah, I was kind of on the same page with you with that pick. There are also a couple of wide receivers that came off right after Mapu that I was intrigued by. I think Josh Downs, maybe Tyler Scott, maybe one or two other other ones there. Um, so, so that was definitely a... Uh, uh, will be a worthwhile second guess depending on how those guys' careers pan out. Um, but I mean, for Mapu so far, again, we've seen him play in multiple different spots. We saw him at linebacker. We saw him at free safety uh, the other day. Uh, we again don't really know what his his permanent position will be. His official position will be. He's listed as a linebacker. Uh, it's clear that the Patriots believe he can at least do multiple things. Uh, Bill Belichick said right after the draft that. He's a guy whose role could even change on a week-to-week basis. Um, so it, it could be something that will continuously evolve over the course of the season. But I think the way I viewed it is if his primary position is safety, if he's going to be another kind of versatile hybrid safety that the Patriots already have three or four of, then I viewed the pick as a bit of a luxury that you probably didn't need at that point in the draft and probably would have been better off spending on another player. But if they believe that he can be that kind of new age, athletic, undersized linebacker that a lot of Patriots fans have been clamoring for, for years that Bill Belichick just never really has seemed to have any interest in. And he's a player who also can bump back in the secondary. If you want him to, then I view it a little bit differently because it kind of shows some evolution in the way that Bill Belichick is, is viewing kind of defensive trends and defensive defensive strategies and whatnot. Uh, Cause I liked the way the Patriots linebackers played last year. I thought Jawan Bentley and Jelani Tavai both had pretty strong seasons, but those are both bigger 240, 250 pound guys, not the most fleet of foot. Uh, so if you're looking for someone like Mapu to come in uh, and be that fast sideline to sideline linebacker, uh, and we've seen some of that speed uh, already on the practice field. There was a play the other day uh, as a swing pass to Pierre strong uh, and you saw that closing speed from Mapu coming and just really being there in in a half a second. 
if he's a kind of guy that can make plays like that for the Patriots and that that's how they plan on using him, then I think he's a very, very intriguing uh, addition to this defense. Yeah, and I'm not going to pretend like I was watching every single Sacramento State game this past season, and I never had anything against the player in particular. I just thought maybe from a need perspective, it's not what the Patriots needed, but who knows? Maybe it works out, and maybe it does end up being a good pick for the Patriots long term. There there were multiple reports out there, too, that Bill Belichick was just completely enamored with this guy, uh, which is is not surprising given how much he values defensive versatility and whatnot. But yeah, he was definitely a pick that, that Bill Belichick had circled on his board. It's a heat check, right? Because he nailed the first two picks. He got Gonzalez. He got Keon White. So he's like, all right, this is my heat check pick right here. And look, it's not like they drafted him in the second round or you know what I mean? Like they so I'm I'm fine with it overall. I just thought it was an interesting selection there. All right. So the two biggest moves of the offseason, we mentioned Christian Gonzalez getting that corner. The other one, and you could argue it's the bigger one, is getting Bill O'Brien back. And I saw Mike Kosecki said, Coach O'Brien has done a really good job bringing everybody along with him. Everybody has brought everybody has a lot of energy. The guys are excited to come out here. And a lot of that is credited to him. Now, we know Gusecki's familiar with Bill O'Brien. He recruited him at Penn State. And then you have a lot of other guys that don't have that history with Bill O'Brien because they weren't here, of course, the first time he was here years ago. But I wonder this, just like the sense from the guys, can you tell that the offense is energized just by having, I don't know, this crazy thing called a competent offensive coordinator because it does feel like all the quotes about Bill O'Brien they're all praising him and I wonder too if part of that is just like man it was so bad we know what it was when it was pretty good with Josh McDaniels now we got another guy that's good at his job I just have to imagine the offense the personnel they just have to be sort of relieved that he's actually there and now they're finally having the opportunity to work with them because we heard about it all offseason but now they're actually out there with them it's a striking difference yeah the the improvement from what they were last year to just a level of competency that they didn't really have uh, with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge running the show last year. And some of that's understandable. Those were guys that had never done those jobs before. Uh, And you switch from them to someone like Bill O'Brien, who's called plays and coached quarterbacks since the early 2000s, really. This is a guy who's been doing this for two decades. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to run an effective NFL offense. He's done it for a long time. Uh, And I think the his impact has been already visible, even in the limited uh, amount of practices that we've been able to watch. It's it's kind of funny when you, when you talk about it because you're like, yeah, they they went through a whole practice and there were no kind of blatant breakdowns or or like fights <laughs> on the field or, or or kind of people jumping off sides or, or Mac Jones getting sacked in two seconds. Like, yeah, it's a real improvement. And if you didn't watch the team last year, you'd probably say like, huh, well, that's I mean, that doesn't sound that great. But just the difference between what it was last year and what it is now, that they're back to, uh, I think Mac Jones summed it up well when he called it normal. He said working with Bill O'Brien feels normal. Uh, he, he said that the communication's been great. The trust has been great. Trust is a word he used three or four times when we spoke with him last week. That was obviously a big issue last year uh, with some of the things they were doing offensively. Uh, and then also talking to Gasicki and so, some other members of this Patriots offense, it's it's just back to being a functional, professional NFL offense. Um, who knows what the, the ceiling of it is? Uh, it's not like they're going out there on the practice field and throwing 70-yard touchdowns on every play. Uh, it hasn't been, I guess, impressive in, in that way. You don't come out and say, oh man, these guys could be uh, the 07 Patriots out here. But it's just, it's looked good. It's looked smooth. It's looked fluid. Uh, and I think that's exactly what you want after what they went through last year. 
Yeah, no doubt about that. So that is a relief. So speaking of Gusecki, you know, of course, that last year they wanted to run more 12 personnel, but Jono Smith was just not really capable of being a reliable guy. And Hunter Henry, of course, still in the mix. But if you look at Gusecki, essentially a big receiver and Henry, not a good blocker. Pro football focus last year had him 36 out of 50th tight ends. Gasicki, 50.6% of his snaps last year came in the slot, 10th among tight ends. That number was at 62.5% two years ago with Mike before Mike McDaniel. Hunter Henry, two years ago, was at 61.6% in the slot. So with these two guys, Gasecki, obviously another big target for Mac in the middle of the field. We know how he is. He's not, can't really turn, but he's a good straight line athlete, right? And we know he can jump out of the building. And then we've seen that him and Hunter Henry have a good chemistry, although that tailed off last year. I'd blame most of that on Matt Patricia. But how much of those two guys do you think we see on the field? Because it does feel like the Patriots have been wanting to use more 12 personnel. Do you think we see that with these two guys? Uh, I do. I think we see a lot of that. Um, I mean, I've made this prediction the last two years, so it could be wrong. But I think that we'll see a lot more uh, 12 personnel from the Patriots this year with two tight ends on the field working together. Uh, a quote from Mac Jones last week stuck out to me. He said, Henry and Gasicki are going to be, quote, working as a pair this season, mm. which seems to suggest that they're going to be on the field together uh, a fair amount, uh, especially because, as you mentioned, Gasicki isn't really a tight end in the traditional sense. I don't think you're going to see him lining up in line and being the the lead blocker on run plays all that often. You're You're going to see him a lot in the slot, a lot split out wide. Uh, he's basically going to be a supersized receiver for the Patriots. So uh, when you have a player like that, you can kind of have 12 personnel that sort of works like 11 personnel, but sort of works like 12 personnel. It gives you some uh, some mismatch opportunities, uh, which Bill Belichick has talked about in the past when he's uh, when he's talked about Gasicki. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the Patriots' primary offensive look this season uh, with those two tight ends, one running back, and then say Juju Smith-Schuster and Devontae Parker or Kendrick Bourne or Tyquan Thornton or mix and match those receivers around them. But I think that's really going to be a focal point of their offense this year. And Bill O'Brien is somebody who has a track record and a history of having success with those two tight end offenses. Uh, he did so in Houston and especially the, the last time he was with the Patriots. His last season as the Patriots offensive coordinator was that 2011 season where uh, Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez combined for like 2,200 yards and 17 touchdowns or something like that. It was a just a preposterous season by both of them, the best season in NFL history by any tight end duo. Uh, I don't think Henry and Gesicki are Gronk and Hernandez from a talent perspective. I think there's a pretty far gap uh, down from those two, but I wouldn't be shocked if you see some similarities in, in the way that those two are used this season with Henry kind of playing the pseudo Gronk role and Gasicki in the Hernandez role where he kind of flexes out in the slot more, maybe lines up in the backfield a little bit. They use him kind of as a little bit more of a chess, chess piece type player. Uh, so I'm very interested to see how all that takes shape. But yeah, I do think that that's going to be a main focus of their offense this year. Yeah, and the thing is that you have a guy that can actually play Gasicki, unlike Jonu Smith. Now, if you want to blame that on the Patriots coaching, whatever it is, Gasicki's been a really good tight end for a number of years. I'm not saying that he's Gronk or Hernandez, but he's a good, solid player. I mean, obviously, he has his issues in the blocking game, but that's not why you signed him. You signed him to be a pass catcher. So Peter Schrager from Good Morning Football, he did this list this week of 
the breakout receivers, and he number one was Garrett Wilson. I would argue he maybe already broke out. I mean, the guy's already a stud. Chris Olave and Drake London. And then on the fourth person, he had Tyquan Thornton. So two years ago, we know the 428 at the 40, third overall, first among receivers. We saw flashes last year, right? And we felt we were going to see more after what he did in training camp and in the preseason. And then, of course, he has the injuries. But now with Bill O'Brien here, we know that he's a smaller guy in terms of his weight, 180-ish around there, right? He's a thin guy. But with Bill O'Brien, you figure, okay, unlike last year, there's going to be more pre-snap motion, maybe more stacked formations that would help him in terms of getting off the line where he's not dealing with all these press coverages and he can actually get down the field and you can actually weaponize that speed. So what do you expect from Tyquan Thornton entering year two? Do you think he has a heavy role in the offense? Uh, I do. Uh, I, I personally was not all that impressed with what I saw from Tyquan Thornton last season. He played a ton and just really wasn't that much of a factor in the offense. I mean, from when he came back from that broken collarbone in week five, through the end of the season, he played more snaps than any Patriots receiver other than Jacoby Myers. Only had 22 catches. Wow. I believe he finished with three touchdowns. Yeah, he was on the field a lot. A lot of people have said... I didn't realize that. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people uh, have been saying last year, why don't they use Taekwon Thornton more? I'm like, well, they, they've been using him a lot. He's been playing 70% of snaps <laughs> yeah. in every game. He just hasn't really been that involved. So wow. I came out of the season kind of discouraged with the product that he put on the field. But if you take a step back and just sort of look at the circumstances around him. I mean, one, it's very difficult for a, a rookie receiver coming into New England, even without the the Tom Brady factor in there. He had the injury in the preseason that wiped out the first month of the season. It's hard to really evaluate anybody in that offense last year with how dysfunctional it was overall. Uh, and he had also had some difficulties in his personal life last year that kind of lingered uh, for for several weeks there and certainly were, were weighing on him. So uh, there were a lot of factors working against him last year. Um, and when you kind of weigh all of those together, I, I think there is uh, reason for optimism this year. Uh, he went out and put on some weight this offseason. We saw him at practice last week. He still isn't a big guy by any means. He's still skinny, but he's he seems to have kind of put on a little bit of muscle, put on a little bit of bulk, which I think he needed because that was he was alarmingly skinny last year. It was you look at him and you don't know how he could survive a, a single NFL game, never mind a whole season. Uh, so he definitely took steps to address that. And he looked really good in the first OTA that we watched. Uh, I mean, again, all the caveats I mentioned earlier, no contact, no pads, no nothing. But uh, he had a really strong connection with Mac Jones. He was really involved, saw him running a, a variety of different routes and really being kind of in the mix a lot. Uh, so I do think that there's reason to to be optimistic for him uh, coming into this this season right now. If I had to project it, I would say probably Smith-Schuster and Parker are those top two receivers. Uh, but then you have Tyquan Thornton and Kendrick Bourne kind of waffling uh, between that number three spot. Uh, I think as it's currently constructed, all four of those guys will probably play significant snaps. Um, but yeah, I was I was encouraged by what I saw from Tyquan Thornton uh, in the limited uh, the limited amount of practice we've been able to see so far. And uh, I, I think he's certainly going to be a guy to watch uh, this spring and summer. Now that you mentioned it, free Kendrick Bourne, man. Matt Patricia should have never been able to. He's not qualified enough to have a doghouse, and he put Bourne in that all last year. Remember when they actually played him against the Bengals? He had six for 100. Two years ago, this guy's third in terms of yak above expectation behind Debo Samuel and Jamar Chase, and the Patriots decide, hey, you know what? The guy that looked really good last year, and it looked like one of the best signings we had two years ago, we're not going to play him. 
Oh my God, that was irritating to me. So hopefully Kendrick Bourne is back in the mix. How about this? Out of that group, Parker, Bourne, and Thornton. Who has the most yards? Ooh. Par- I mean, it maybe Parker is always like, what, he's 17, over 17 yards a uh, reception? Yeah. So he, he's kind of got a built-in most, strength if there. If we're talking most yards, I'll probably go Parker. If we're talking most catches, I'm going to say Bourne for now. I, I think as long as he doesn't fall into the same doghouse with Bill O'Brien as he did with Matt Patricia last season, I think O'Brien as a... Uh, kind of a guy who knows what he's doing offensively had to have watched his tape from 2021 and said, all right, this is a guy who can make plays. This is a guy who we should put the ball in his hands. Um, Haven't really seen much from, I mean, the last practice we were able to watch a couple of days ago, Patriots were missing their top four wide receivers. So haven't seen a ton from any of those guys so far this spring. Uh, But uh, I definitely think it would make sense for the Patriots to get Kendrick Bourne more involved than they did last season because he was probably their best offensive playmaker overall uh, two years ago. Yeah, I love how you say that. Like he knows offensive football, so he'll probably put on the film and realize Kendrick Bourne is good <laughs> right now. Like, Again, no. low bar, low bar, but it's uh, <laughs> it's a difference from last season. All right, so DeAndre Hopkins taking a visit with the Tennessee Titans. Of course, there's the Vrabel connection when they were both in Houston. Vrabel was the offensive coordinator. Hopkins, of course, was playing there for Bill O'Brien. We know the history with Bill O'Brien and DeAndre Hopkins. Do you think that the Patriots make a serious play for him? Because I was talking about this the other day. There's not a lot of teams that can offer him what he wants from a financial perspective. Like DeAndre Hopkins wants to go to one of these elite teams. Those elite teams can't pay him. So unless he wants to play for like nothing, which I can't imagine he wants to do at the age of 31, we've heard that he wants something like Odell Beckham, which is $15 million. The Patriots are one of the only teams that can legitimately offer him what he actually wants do you think they actually make a play for him? I think they should, because if I like a lot of the players they have from a receiver standpoint, but if you get Hopkins in, man, and then you look at this defense, you're really cooking with gasoline. I also think they should. Uh, I think it makes sense. Uh, I think the, as you mentioned, the one thing, thing that they've been missing really for the last three or four years is that true number one Pro Bowl caliber receiver. Obviously, Hopkins isn't the the, the level of player he was back in 2017, 2018, 2019, but he's still a very good player. He's still a receiver that forces defenses to kind of shape what they're doing around him. Uh, and I just think that he would make sense in this Patriots offense. Uh, there are a number of different factors, obviously, at play in here. One of the biggest ones the, being the, uh, the whole Bill O'Brien factor. You don't know whether Hopkins would be interested in reuniting with O'Brien after the way that things ended between them in Houston. Uh, there's reports out there that O'Brien would welcome uh, Hopkins back. Uh, and there are also reports that all of this is maybe a little bit overblown and, and not that big of a deal and kind of water under the bridge between them. Uh, but if all of that is kind of is, is not a factor in this, uh, I just go back to what Hopkins said a couple of days before he got released when he was on uh, Brandon Marshall's podcast. Uh, Marshall asked him what he's looking for in his next team. He said he wants to play for a team with stable management. He wants to play for a quarter or play with a quarterback who loves football. And he wants to play for a team that has a great defense. And he specifically said, I don't need to play with a great quarterback. Uh, I believe his exact quote was, I've put up numbers with subpar quarterbacks before. I don't need to play with a great one. I just want one who loves the game the way I do. I mean, looking at the Patriots, it seems like they check all three of those boxes. Um, I mean, even with Mac Jones, you 
obviously, uh, I don't think you would call him a great quarterback at this point, but he's certainly someone who's passionate about the game uh, and loves football. I don't know. There are some other some other potential hangups too with the fact that uh, DeAndre Hopkins doesn't really practice a lot based on some reports. So some of his kind of demeanor behind the scenes could be a little bit of an issue for the Patriots. But I don't know. I think from an overall perspective, uh, it makes sense. They've got the they have the need. They have the cap space, um, and it seems like he would be interested in joining a team like this. So I don't know. If I'm them, I I am seriously consider considering making this move. Oh, I'm totally with you. And it, that quote is unbelievable. If I'm Belichick, I'm calling him right now. Like, hey, let's go. And Hopkins has already been praised by Bill. We all saw the HBO thing or whatever it was. Oh, yeah. I think it was HBO, right? Whereas him, he was mic'd up and or Hopkins was mic'd up talking to him for that Cardinals show that they were doing. I mean, go get him. Can you imagine if the offseason was Bill O'Brien, Christian Gonzalez and DeAndre Hopkins? I mean, that would be it's already been a really good offseason for the Patriots. I want to preface what I'm saying. But if you got DeAndre Hopkins, I mean, we're talking about maybe the best off offseason in the NFL. Bill Belichick loves DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, even before that clip uh, in the lead up to that Cardinals game, uh, he compared him to Chris Carter and said, I, I believe the exact quote he's was, he's every bit as good as anybody that I've ever coached against. So yeah, wow. you, can, you can tell Bill Belichick coach speak from Bill Belichick actual praise. Uh, and that was certainly actual praise from Belichick. And, and one more point on the cap space uh, scenario. Uh, the Patriots probably already have enough right now to sign DeAndre Hopkins. I don't think he's going to get that full 15 million that Odell Beckham got. But if they do sign him, it probably means they let go of either Devontae Parker or Kendrick Bourne just to fit all the bodies in there. Uh, and cutting or trading either of those players would free up an extra $5 million in cap space. So from a financial perspective, uh, from everything I could tell, it wouldn't be that much of an issue to uh, bring a guy like this in. Oh, oh, my God. I mean, if they can actually execute this, this is going to be this would be absolutely unbelievable, especially I've been saying for a couple of years, like, let's get Mac a legit number one and see what he really is. I mean, this would be tremendous. All right. Speaking of Mac, he said he plans to do everything he can to earn the respect of everybody back in the building, which I thought was a mature thing. And I know you had an article up at Nesset about Scott Pioli really liked that he did that. And Last year, going back to some of the outbursts, I mean, they were immature. We can understand where he's coming from now that we know about Patricia and Joe Judge running the offense. But I thought that lacked leadership. So I thought that was big of Mac to actually say that. But just thinking of on the field, now that he has the new coach in there, the personnel seems to be better. I was looking at his numbers from his rookie year, 92.5 passer rating, completion percentage, 67.6. Last year, obviously, the numbers weren't good. But what do you think we should expect from Mac entering this year now that all this stuff is in place? Should it be basically what we thought the year two jump would be, where it's a little bit improvement of what we saw from his rookie year? Or do you think that it's going to be a bigger step than that, maybe? Or do you think he's going to be similar to the guy we saw last year? I think at minimum, he can get back to what he was as a rookie. Um, You look at the team around him, he has an improved supporting cast. Uh, and just the coaching change, I think people, a lot of fans don't recognize just how significant it's going to be to have someone like Bill O'Brien now leading that quarterback room and that offense uh, compared to what they had last season. Uh, I'm not going to say that Mac Jones is suddenly be gonna, going to become a, a top 10 quarterback this year or anything like that, but I do think that O'Brien and the group around him can definitely get him back to the level he was at as a rookie, if not a little bit higher. 
And really, if you get the Patriots offense back to what it was in 2021, where it was, I would say, a borderline top 10 unit based on most metrics under Josh McDaniels, it's hard to imagine them not being a playoff team uh, unless their defense fully craters or unless their special teams completely falls apart again. Uh, I think that level of offensive improvement, getting them back to a slightly above average group, uh, I think is going to get this Patriots team 10, 11 wins and back in the playoffs. Obviously, it's a tough road for them uh, in this division and, and with the schedule they have. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I think, more bullish on the Patriots' chances um, than a lot of people. Uh, I think this is going to be uh, a markedly different team than we saw last season. Yeah, and it's a great point because just in terms of the coaching staff, because you look at it even like Ramondre Stevenson suffered as great as his year was. Look at all the yards after contact. He was first among qualifiers in per attempt because the running game wasn't set up well. We knew that from a play action standpoint, they couldn't mirror the run plays with the pass plays. That's stuff that is not going to happen in 2023. So I think it's going to be the offensive line was a complete mess. Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be slightly better than his rookie season. I think we're going to look at him and say, okay, he's a pretty good quarterback. And if the team is good enough around him, this team has an opportunity to make it into the playoffs, which I want to get you out on this one, Zach, because speaking of the playoffs, the Patriots on FanDuel, we know how loaded this division are. They're plus 750 right now to win the division. The Bills plus 130, the Jets plus 250, and the Dolphins are at plus 290. So out of the three in front of the Patriots, the most likely underwhelming season to me I'm going to put the Jets in front of the Dolphins because I love the Dolphins bringing in Vic Fangio and they went out and they got Jalen Ramsey to help them defensively as well. And we forget about the Bradley Chubb trade that they made midseason. And look, they may even get Delvin Cook very soon here if he wants to go play for Mike McDaniel. But so we see those. And then I look at the Jets. We talk about how difficult the schedule is for the Patriots. And obviously it's going to be similar for the division. The Jets, they start home for the Bills at Dallas, home for the Patriots, home for Kansas City at Denver, which is always tough to play there. And they have a competent coach now. And then Philly, like that's a really difficult start. So and remember, the Brady Bucks were seven and five in 2020. He had that game where he lost track of downs or he thought he had a t- whatever it was. I think he lost track of downs. Yeah. Against the Bears on a Thursday nighter. They had a yeah, they had a bad 38 to three loss against New Orleans. And I look at it and I. I guess like the only problem is I'm banking on Tua's health, right? Although the backup situation there is better this year with Mike White than it was last year. I feel like more similar in terms of the skill set. But if one of those is going to be underachieving and the Patriots pass them in the standings, I think it's the Jets. I don't think it's the Dolphins. I I really like I don't think the Rodgers thing is going to be as seamless as everybody thinks. Uh, I agree with you on that. Uh, I think with Miami, the Tua health situation is is the biggest wild card, probably the single biggest wild card in this entire division, uh, because obviously it was a very difficult season for him last year from a concussion standpoint. It, I know he's taking steps to improve that, but there's only so much you can do. And, and sometimes those are just freak plays. Uh, so I don't know. It's If he can make it through a, a full 17 game season or most of a 17 game season, then I think the the Dolphins are very well positioned, especially defensively, as you mentioned. Uh, but, but yeah, the I think the people who are already kind of penciling in the Jets into the divisional round or the AFC Championship game are kind of getting out over their skis a little bit. You just you look at the season that Rodgers had last year. I know he was dealing with an injury for part of it, but it, it was essentially the worst season of his career, or one of the worst seasons of his career. He's going to be changing teams uh, after playing for the same one for his entire career. He's got a lot of 
new pieces moving around around him, even though he did import some uh, receivers from Green Bay with him. I don't know. I feel like the 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 likelihood of kind of chaos and dysfunction happening there is higher than a lot of people uh, have been led to believe. Uh, I don't know. It's looking at it objectively. You kind of have to say the Patriots are the number four team right now, but I don't know. I kind of have two ideas in my mind. I I say you look on paper and you say, yeah, it's hard to put the Patriots over any of these three other teams. But I also feel like this Patriots team is going to win 10 games and be back in the playoffs. So I don't really know how both of those can live at the same time. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. It's you go back to what we what we had last year going into last season. Uh, Denver was supposed to be a juggernaut. The Chargers were supposed to be a juggernaut. Uh, The Colts were supposed to be in the playoffs. A lot of times these preseason predictions just don't prove to be correct, be it injuries or kind of poor fits or, or whatnot. Um, I don't know. I, I think the uh, my prediction for the season is the Patriots win 10 games and get back in the playoffs. But nice. I do acknowledge that it's a pretty difficult road uh, to get there on paper, at least. I like it. And with the Jets, too, like we don't even know if Robert Sala is good at his job. And it's like, oh, they brought in Nathaniel Hackett, his old assistant coach, his old co- well. LaFleur was calling the plays and it was Rodgers in the floor. It had nothing to do with Nathaniel Hackett. And if you present to me with the scenario, hey, what's more likely? Robert Sala's fired. The Jets don't make the playoffs or the Jets win a playoff game. I would say Robert Sala gets fired and the Jets don't make the playoffs. So I'm not as high on the Jets as everybody else. And I'm really looking forward to the season. That is Zach Cox from Ness. And Zach, thank you so much for the time, man. Enjoy the rest of the offseason activities for this Patriots team. Really enjoyed having you on again. And we'll do it again. Absolutely, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's almost time to crown an NBA champion and FanDuel wants you to be part of the excitement because right now new customers can get a no sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. And I'm looking at game four between the Nuggets and the Heat coming up on Friday night plus 237. How about this for a same game parlay? Nuggets on the money line, Jamal Murray 25 plus points, Jamal Murray three made threes and Jokic eight assists. So plus 237. Nuggets on the money line, Jamal Murray 25 points, Jamal Murray 3 made threes, and Jokic 8 assists. There is no better place to bet on all the finals action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com Pike and get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's FanDuel.com Pike. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369 in New York. 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. 
or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy Zach Cox from Nesson. All right, coming up next, this is a lot of fun. Me and my buddy John Jastrzemski, of course, you know him. He's been on this pod plenty of times, part of the Ringer Podcast Network from New York, New York, part of our FanDuel TV show for the local angle. We previewed the Red Sox-Yankees series, got into some of the history of the rivalry as well. It was a lot of fun going back and forth with JJ talking Red Sox and Yankees. So the first part, JJ's hosting. The second part, I'm hosting. So I hope you guys enjoy that next. Let's roll, baby. Welcome to the local angle here on FanDuel TV as we welcome the meeting of the minds here as we get ready for the Yankees and the Red Sox, the first installment at Yankee Stadium Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm John Jastrzemski, the host of New York, New York. We welcome in Brian Barrett, the outstanding host of Off the Pike. Mr. Barrett, do you remember when we were growing up that Yankees, Red Sox, it didn't matter if it was April, July, September, or especially October, you stopped everything that you were doing. It was must-watch TV. And, you know, I think about it, Brian. The rivalry is clearly not what it was. But you give me peak 2003 to 2007 baseball in the regular season, it didn't get better at that point in time, my man, than the Yankees and the Red Sox going to battle. Yeah, especially you go back to 03 and 04. Of course, 03, we all know how that ended. Grady Little leaving Pedro Martinez in a little bit too long. You get the Aaron Boone home run. And then the next year, it looks like the Yankees are going to go back to the World Series again. The epic comeback from the Red Sox. And of course, in between there, the Red Sox hire Terry Francona, say goodbye to Grady Little. But those are some of my favorite days growing up as a fan, right? Because the whole documentary that the boss Bill Simmons put together, four days in October, it just, that was such an epic event. And those were clearly, JJ, at that time, and I know the Yankees lost at 03 to the Marlins, young Josh Beckett and all that, but those teams were the two best teams in baseball for those two years. And it was just such an epic sort of battle where, the Red Sox are going to get A-Rod. Then they didn't get A-Rod. A-Rod goes to the Yankees. Manny Ramirez was going to be traded. The Red Sox bring in Kurt Schilling, the bloody sock. It was just the Red Sox are trying to get to where the Yankees were. And they finally got over the hump. But the back and forth, the brawls, A-Rod slapping the glove. It was just epic. And I'm with you, man. It was awesome back in the day. It just it doesn't have the same luster. I was hoping after the 18 playoff situation where Aaron Boone went by the Red Sox clubhouse and he had New York, New York playing. I thought that was going to be the start of a rivalry between those two teams. Again, obviously they're rivals, but then it sort of went more so the Yankees and the Astros than it did the Red Sox and the Yankees, right? It's a great point. And, you know, 2018, the Red Sox beat the Yankees in four games and you're thinking, okay, Aaron Judge, New York, New York, the Red Sox coming into Yankee Stadium, smoking them in game three and winning in game four on that Eduardo Nunez play. And you're like, okay, these are two teams that are going to be really good for a long period of time within the American League. And it kind of seems like, Barrett, when the Yankees are good, the Red Sox are awful. And when the Yankees are okay, then all right, you get the year where the Red Sox in 2021 find their way to the American League Championship Series. It is weird thinking about the fact that the Red Sox have two postseason victories over the Yankees. But then when you talk about the other years with the Red Sox, they're just completely irrelevant. That's what it boils down to. And I don't know if we're there yet with the Red Sox because there are a lot of playoff teams involved. They're in the best division, hands down, in Major League Baseball. But that's kind of been the M.O. from 2018 on. Either the Red Sox are thrown in the Yankees side and they beat them or they're nothing to worry about. 
Yeah, they're extremely perplexing. If you think about it from this perspective, they've won the World Series with three different managers. They've won the World Series with three different front office members, if you will, in terms of guys running the organization, Theo and Ben Sherrington and Dave Dombrowski, right? So they keep switching things up when it comes to that. There's never consistency with the team. I get it's great that they have these highs where they've won four World Series since the turn of the century, but the consistency is never there. And the ownership group, reacts very quickly to when things go wrong. And that's sort of been where these Yankees and the Red Sox haven't really aligned, where it was, what, 04 to 2018. And then we got the epic wild card game in 2021, which was incredibly entertaining and all that. But there hasn't been enough consistency with it. I thought maybe, like I was alluding to, the 18 year, you had the Tyler Austin brawl, <laughs> Yankees fame. But overall, it just it doesn't have the same luster. And from a Red Sox angle and all this, it does feel like, they need to take two or three, or they're pretty close to done. They just dropped two of three to Cleveland. This Red Sox team is reeling. We don't know what's going to happen with Chris Sale. My imagination would be that he's out for a significant amount of time. I wouldn't be shocked if he's done for the season. Who needs another test after he had an MRI and a CAT scan? You don't know what's wrong with the guy yet. Clearly, they don't think it's a good thing with Chris Sale. And JJ, the problem is this. They're depending on a healthy Chris Sale. They went into a season depending on a healthy Chris Sale. And if they don't have that guy, they're in major trouble. I'm curious to get a sense because I watched the Yankees and the Dodgers last weekend at Chavez Ravine and your old pal, J.D. Martinez, is mashing. And he looked like a guy in the second half of last year, Brian, who looked totally cooked, totally done, didn't think he had much left. I thought the Dodgers grossly overpaid for him. Well, they were dead right, and I was dead wrong because J.D. Martinez has done nothing but hit for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Then you have Nathan Avaldi. Well, I thought the Red Sox completely dropped the ball by not bringing him back. He was always a tough pitcher against the Yankees. He had a lot of moments of postseason brilliance. 2018, of course. 2021, he was really good. And I know he missed time, but he was one of those guys. I, I was happy to see him leave the Boston Red Sox, full disclosure. <laughs> and then Michael Walker, who, listen, kind of a fringe guy, but is pitching great for the San Diego Padres. Out of those three in Boston, where is the fan base the most upset? Is it Avaldi? Is it Martinez? Is it Waka as far as their departures? It's Avaldi. And for the reason that clearly they need starting pitching right now, and he resonates with the organization the most, the fan base, I should say, right? Because if you go back to when they won the World Series, Nate was great in that playoff run. And remember, he pitched that epic 17 inning game where he came out of relief, the only game they lost, but he ate up all those innings. And then you go back to 2021. Who did they start in the wild card game? It was Nathan Avaldi. He was a big game pitcher for this team. So that's the guy that they're the most pissed about. But the issue is that Nathan Avaldi, and I understand why fans are upset. I'm upset that he's not with the organization. I think they should have went to him during last season and offered him a contract when he was dealing with an injury throughout the year where he would probably be more likely to sign a multi-year deal. But here's the problem. Nate went to the Red Sox. They offered him a three-year contract. He didn't want it. They wanted more than that. His representation thought they were going to get four years. Guess what? They didn't get four years anywhere. Texas offers him two. And at that particular point in time, he's still interested in the Red Sox. But the Red Sox are like, well, we're not going to give you a four-year contract. He takes two with the Texas Rangers. So in that sense, I defend the Red Sox a little bit. But I come back to the original point. It's the same thing that happens over and over with this organization. They're too late. They should have never paid Bogarts what he got with San Diego, but that deal could have been done two years ago. Rafael Devers is making over $300 million. You should have approached him 
way before you did because you could have got a team-friendly deal done. But to answer your original question, it would definitely be Nate because this team is one of the worst rotations in Major League Baseball, 26. Nate is probably going to win the Cy Young. He's on pace to win the Cy Young in the American League right now. He's third in baseball in pitching war. And you could have had that guy with your team. So do the Red Sox fans look at this team, Brian, and believe they can be in legitimate contention? Obviously, these next two weekends are gigantic for them. I think these games are bigger for the Red Sox, quite frankly, than they are the New York Yankees. There are three Yankee Stadium this week. There are a bunch of games at Fenway Park next week. And with baseball and the Philadelphia Phillies are a perfect example of this. You never feel like you're truly out of it. As long as you get in the playoffs, there's six teams that go. It kind of gives you that illusion that, hey, if you just get in, you could be a team capable of making noise. Does New England look at the Red Sox as a team that can ascend in this loaded American League East? Or are they kind of like out on the Red Sox that need to be pulled in? Where is the fan base right now? Everybody's out on them right now because they just have so many issues. I talked about the starting pitching. Like, who can you depend on outside of Chris Sale? Paxton's been good, but of course, he's coming back from an injury. Then you got a bunch of young guys. Whitlock's already been injured this season. Tanner Houck cannot go through the lineup the second time. He's had issues when it comes to that. And then the biggest thing is they have issues defensively. They are legitimately one of the worst defensive teams in Major League Baseball. You look at defensive run save, they're 28th. You look at errors, they're 29th. They've made the most throwing errors in Major League Baseball. Kike Hernandez has made 13 of them. Kike Hernandez has the most errors in Major League Baseball. They knew that Trevor Story was injured to start the season. And the only guy they brought in was Mondesi. Mondesi's coming off a torn ACL. He can't play. So the Red Sox have been hurt by a Yu Chang injury. Think about that. We're talking about Yu Chang being injured to start the Red Sox because they don't have a competent Major League sh shortstop. JJ, this guy cannot toss the ball to second. So... The defense has been bad. Rafael Devers has not had the year that they thought that he was going to have. And then the defense is just horrible. The second base defense is horrible, too. Emmanuel Valdez, minus six defensive run saves. He's been one of the worst defensive second basemen in Major League Baseball. Casas, who is a young guy, he's been atrocious at first base. So there's not a lot of hope. The only hope is this. Duvall's coming back this weekend, and he was basically Babe Ruth before the injury, although it was only eight games of Babe Ruth. I'm trying to find the division odds for the Boston Red Sox. They are. You want to hear these, Barrett? I have the FanDuel odds right Not now. Not really. The American yeah, Yankees. go ahead. Well, I'm going to humor you because, listen, the Yankee odds are kind of pathetic, too. Tampa's minus 280 to win the division. Yankees are at plus 460. Toronto's at plus 800. The surprising Orioles are at 16 to 1. Take a guess what the Red Sox are to win the American League East. I got to say, like, plus 5,500. They are plus <laughs> 10,000. Oh, my. Plus 10,000. Phil's the Boston Red Sox are plus 10,000 to win the American League East in June. That is insane. What were the Yankees again? Yankees are a plus 460. That's a, are, are you stunned with what Tampa's doing? Yeah. They're incredible. They are incredible. Well, they do everything right. They run the bases well. They play good defense. They hit, and we always know that they're going to pitch. And that's the thing that aggravates you, and I'm sure it aggravates you as a Yankees fan as well. They always have another arm that's coming up. The Red Sox don't have homegrown pitching prospects. They have Bayo. That's pretty much it right now. Like, Drohan, a kid in AAA, that's great, but he's not ready to pitch at the major league level. The Red Sox really haven't developed a homegrown pitching prospect in years. I mean, you think about it, you really have to go back to Lester because Buckholz, of course, flamed out with the injuries. But even Erod, that's a guy that they got via trade. Think about all the good Red Sox pitchers 
since they won these World Series. Beckett, trade. Lester was the only guy that was homegrown. Sale, trade. David Price, who he had his issues here, but he was part of a World Series team. That's a guy that you picked up in free agency. Nathan Avaldi, trade. They don't develop pitching prospects, and Tampa is better than anybody at doing that. Insane. We'll come back, and there are issues with the team that I cover because they may have a record that's north of the 500 mark, but you get a sense for what life is like without one of the premier players in all of baseball. And news for you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls across America, it ain't pretty. We're coming right back. Welcome back into the local angle on FanDuel TV. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, and with us is John Jastrzemski from New York, New York. So, JJ, we're getting into this Red Sox-Yankees series coming up this weekend. And one of the things that sticks out to me is I wonder, Alex Cora, I still believe, is one of the best tacticians in Major League Baseball. And I just wonder how long he wants to keep doing this with this Red Sox organization, right? Because you look at this team, he's had a bad year last year where he didn't have the proper team that he needed. You could say the same thing about this year. We were just getting into the defensive issues that they've had, the issues in the rotation. And what if at the end of the season, Cora decides, you know what, I don't know how much longer I want to be part of this Red Sox thing. Do the Yankees fire Aaron Boone on the spot and try to go after I Alex I mean, I Cora? would, listen, I would go drive <laughs> North I-95. I would give Alex Cora the uh, full complement of treatment, whatever he wants, and make him the next manager of the team. Uh, unfortunately, though, Brian, I am now resigned to the fact, and I have not exactly been the biggest Aaron Boone pom-pom waver out there, but as long as Brian Cashman is the general manager of the New York Yankees, the Yankees under Aaron Boone have gone through years where they lost to the Red Sox in a one-game playoff, where they got swept four straight games by the Houston Astros. They've yet to make a World Series, and yet he's not going anywhere. And the general manager is not going anywhere. And it's not that the Yankees have been a bad team. Listen, they've been in the playoffs every one of those years. If you look at the win-loss record, statistically speaking, I have to acknowledge and be fair that it's been a very good one. For Aaron Boone as Yankee manager, but yeah. does he inspire confidence from me? Does he inspire confidence from the Yankee fan that they have the next, you know, Zen master in the dugout? No, they don't. And listen, we know that the manager's spot has been minimized to some degree in Major League Baseball. I think there's some truth in that. But I look at guys around baseball. Bruce Bochy is a perfect example. Look at the Texas Rangers this year. I know they added Evaldi. I know they got bounce-back years out of Seager and Marcus Simeon, but you're going to sit there and tell me that his presence and the championship pedigree that he brought from San Francisco hasn't made a difference with that team? I'm not buying. I'm one of these guys, Brian, that still thinks there's something to be said for that presence that a manager can provide, and I still wonder if Aaron Boone has that right ingredient. He's good with the players. He loves The media loves him. They eat off whatever he's throwing at them. But does he have that it factor about him as Yankee manager? I have my doubts. Well, it's an interesting concept, too, because it happens in baseball all the time. You just look at a team, for example, like the Red Sox, where Terry Francona was incredible for this team after Grady Little. Terry Francona is dealing with a clubhouse that they lose it when they have the epic collapse 7-20 and 20 down the stretch, the chicken and beer year. They move on. Now, they hire the wrong guy, Bobby Valentine, but then Farrell works. Farrell is not working out. They hire Alex Cora. The next year, they win the World Series. So sometimes it just works that way. I mean, I see it in the NHL right now where Bruce Cassidy, who was the former Bruins coach, is now with Vegas. They're about to win the Stanley Cup. So Aaron Boone may be a good manager. It may just be time for the Yankees to move on from him. And I look at Alex Cora, and I think about the fact that he just had to bench Alex Verdugo. 
in a game because Alex Verdugo didn't run to second when they were down 5-2 in a game this week. And clearly, you had Justin Turner coming up, you had an opportunity to, take, to at least make that game closer against Cleveland. This is a team that cannot make mistakes, and that happens with a guy like Verdugo. And I just wonder, like, is the message, like, Cora's message is getting through, but does he have the players around him? And the frustration is growing here because earlier this week, when they made a bunch of errors again, he said the roster is the roster. And if I'm Alex Cora, I don't know how much longer I can trust that Bloom's actually going to give the guys to me that work. Because the one year that they made it to the playoffs with Bloom, Cora's bringing starters out of the bullpen during the regular season. So if I'm Alex Cora, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if Bloom's still here. Do I really want to work for this guy? I think there's a lot of truth in that. And having your horses is everything. We're seeing it with the Yankees right now. And you can be the biggest Darren Boone hater on the planet. And you have to acknowledge that the Yankees have been one of the most decimated teams in all baseball when you talk about injuries. Now, we can applaud Tampa Bay. And listen, Tampa Bay's organization is terrific. But let's think about this for a minute. The Yankees are missing Harrison Bader multiple stints on the I.L. Yankee record when Harrison Bader plays is outstanding. There's a guy by the name of Aaron Judge who, outside of Shohei Otani, is the best player in Major League Baseball. Does everything. Plays high-level defense. Gets on base. Broke the home run record was on pace to maybe break that record again before he found his way on the IL Saturday, crashing into the wall at Dodger Stadium. So you're without him, a guy by the name of Carlos Rodon, who was a big free agent pickup for the Yankees, who was supposed to be the guy, Brian, that was going to allow them to close the gap with the Houston Astros, was going to be the guy to really allow the Yankees to go and make their move. He hasn't thrown a pitch this year. Think about that for a minute. So. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the Yankee manager. And listen, I think he's far from perfect. But I also think you have to acknowledge with this team, a lot of things they expected to be givens, givens going into the start of the year, have been anything but Judge, Stanton, Bader, Rodon, missing extended periods of time, problematic. Yeah, and you look at it too, that's the one thing where the Yankees get the benefit of the doubt, unlike the Red Sox. The Red Sox signed Corey Kluber to be a starter. And you know what? Corey Kluber has been able to pitch, but you know what? He's been really bad. Corey Kluber has completely fallen off a cliff to the point they took him out of the rotation. And in their game on Thursday night, he comes out of relief. He gives up eight hits in one inning. In one inning, JJ, the guy we talked about earlier, Nathan Evaldi, guess what? He's given up five hits in his last two outings. And Corey Kluber comes out of the bullpen and just gets completely annihilated, which brings me to the series coming up this weekend because I really look at it, and it's a major series for the Red Sox, as it is for the Yankees, but I give the Yankees the edge, just because you look at it, I know Duvall's going to be coming back for the Red Sox, but Whitlock has had one good start this year, really. He has not been consistent whatsoever. His changeup was not great last time compared to the previous start, and he's going up against Cole, so obviously you favor the Yankees in that game. Then you look at the Houck situation. Tanner Houck, basically, if you look at his numbers on the season, second time through the order. 326 opponents are hitting against him. JJ, there's four guys in baseball hitting north of 326. So basically, if you hit against Tanner Houck the second time through the order, you're an MVP candidate. And then you go to the final game. Bayo is a game that you would feel confident about from a Red Sox perspective because he has been pretty good. This is one of the young pitching prospects that has been good. I know Schmidt's going for the Yankees, but I look at this and I'd say, the most likely outcome is the Red Sox lose two of the three. And I think it's would be, I would be more surprised if the Red Sox took two of three than if the Yankees swept the series. Interesting. See, I think the Red Sox are going to take two of three this weekend, Brian. Wow. I think there's going to be a sense of desperation out of the Red Sox. 
it's kind of put up or shut up time for the Boston Red Sox. They have had success in the past getting to Garrett Cole. And listen, Garrett Cole silenced a lot of the haters last year in the postseason. Season was on the line against the Cleveland Guardians. He is the main reason they got to the ALCS. He dominated in game one. They're down two to one. He went into the eighth inning of that game four. So I have nothing but good things to say about the fierce competitor that Garrett Cole is. And listen, in a day and age in which a lot of starters, they're missing time. They're going 150 innings if you're lucky. Cole is a bulldog. He takes the ball every fifth day. Now that said, he has struggled mightily in his career against Rafael Devers. And the last couple of starts, the long ball has been an issue for him. Not the case against the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I wouldn't be surprised if we get a high-scoring affair on Friday night. But I just, you, you, you see it with the Yankees and the Red Sox a lot. When you expect to see a certain outcome, you normally don't end up getting that certain outcome. So I, I think conventional wisdom to your point says, yeah, the Red Sox are probably going to go and lose two out of three. The Yankees and their pitching are probably better set up for this particular series. But no Aaron Judge in the lineup for the Yankees. Yankee lineup scuffling. They're not the same team without them. I think the Red Sox come to Yankee Stadium and play well here. I think they take two or three. I hope you're right. I don't think you're going to be right, but I certainly hope you're right. Now, here's what I'll say about the Red Sox lineup. So if you look at it, they took two games from the Padres, and then they lost the finale. This is the 21st of May. After that stretch, JJ, from that point on, now it's nine home runs after the game on Thursday night, but they were dead last in baseball during that stretch. A 16-game sample size where that team hit eight home runs. The Boston Red Sox hit eight home runs. Rafael Devers did not have a home run during that stretch. Rafael Devers, they just paid him north of $300 million. And if you look at some of the expected numbers versus the actual numbers, he's been hurt significantly. He's the 15th worst and the 20th worst in terms of the gap between those. But at the same point, he hasn't been walking until this month. He swings at everything. And the other component to all this, he's hitting south of 250. His on-base percentage is south of 300. And this is the guy that was supposed to be carrying this Red Sox lineup. And I'm not saying the organization has buyer's remorse, but man, it's a lot of money for a guy that his value is hitting. His value is not yeah, in he's his there defense. To hit. Brian, you yeah. nailed it. He's there to hit. And when you give a big contract like that, there's something to be said for that pressure that sometimes an athlete has to deal with. And that's why I applaud Judge so much because Judge in a walk year, Everyone knew he was going to free agency, had the season of his life. And I know he goes down with this injury on Saturday, but for him, Brian, after getting all of that money and being in the pressure cooker that is New York City to go and basically handle the expectations and dominate the way he has dominated, that kind of shows you in a nutshell why he's one of the special ones. You know, there are great players, right? Like, I think Rafael Devers, one of the most feared hitters in baseball. He's one of those guys that has killed the Yankees throughout his career. But when you can do everything on the baseball field and you can handle the heightened expectations, that's when you know you're dealing with a special one, my man. Yeah, so I hope that this weekend that at some point we see Rafael Devers get back on track because I do feel like that is something that could sort of kickstart his year. And as you said, he has unbelievable numbers against Garrett Cole, so maybe that's part of it. I'm just not hopeful that it comes to that, but... The biggest thing I'm looking for this weekend, can we just get some clean games defensively from this Red Sox team, JJ? Is that like they put, they're not good enough to have these bad defensive games and have these issues with the rotation and in the like they, they can't get anything right. There's not one the only thing that's working for them, JJ, Yoshida. This guy is an unbelievable yeah, he's been pick. Awesome. That's he's it. Been awesome. That's the only that's the only thing Heim Bloom did well this offseason. The rest of it, it's terrible. 
uh, from a Yankee perspective, where's the offense coming from? And I can't believe I'm saying it. Josh Donaldson. Josh Donaldson, since he's come off the aisles, wow. hit three home runs. That's how desperate the Yankees are without judging this lineup. I'm searching for Josh Donaldson and Jake Bowers and Willie Calhoun to hit for the New York Yankees. Not going to be uh, your household name of Yankees in the everyday lineup this weekend. Just a little food for thought, America. All right. So the guy covering the Red Sox thinks the Red Sox dropped two of three. The guy covering the Yankees thinks the Yankees dropped two of three. So, JJ, great stuff, man. A lot more coming up on the local angle here on FanDuel TV. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly special, and you'll hear from Jason Goff, of course, in Chicago. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from JJ as we get you ready for the Red Sox and the Yankees coming up this weekend. And great stuff from Zach Cox from Nesson as well as I'm excited for this Patriots team. And maybe part of it is because the Red Sox have been playing so poorly and the Celtics didn't make it to the NBA Finals and the Bruins ended up losing at the first round to the Florida Panthers. And now Bruce Cassidy in all likelihood is going to be winning the Stanley Cup. So maybe that's part of it. But I am excited about Christian Gonzalez. I'm excited about just finally getting a competent offensive coordinator in there in Bill O'Brien. All right. So we do have time for a call. So let's do that. 617-396-7172. Brian, this is uh, Jason in Beverly here. Um, I'm going to leave the whole Dermotti thing aside. I'm sure the plenty of other people are going to call. You might have your thoughts in it. But I'm just going to leave that alone for now. What the fuck are we watching? This was a 3-2 to two game in the fifth inning. Cora brings in Corey Kluber to Zaney Bulk because this team is deficient in starting pitching, has been basically high in Bloom's entire tenure as GM. But they let Corey Kluber go three and a third innings, give up seven earned runs, 11 hits, one walk, one strikeout, two homers. A competitive 3-2 to two game against the below 500 opponent in the Cleveland Guardians. The game, you think, you know, the Red Sox, you know, they have a reasonable chance to come back and still win. They let that 3-2 to two game turn into a 10-2 game. What? This is a new low. This this is. Like, I'm not even mad. I'm just, like, bewildered, kind of laughing, hate-watching. You know, this is rock bottom. Oh, and we played the Yankees for three over the weekend. Thank God uh, we're avoiding uh, Aaron Judge in uh, most of their pitching stats. Well, you're right about that. At least Aaron Judge is out of the lineup. But to the point about the starting pitching, it's an absolute joke right now. This rotation is a mess, and it's going to be even more of a mess if, like we expect, Sale not to come back anytime soon. This rotation was short to begin the season, and now we're seeing it right now. It's a real issue. You technically don't want Tanner Houck in the rotation. He's in the rotation. Whitlock has been dealing with an injury. Corey Kluber was your opening day starter, and this is just a complete mess. Kluber gave up eight hits in one inning. In one inning, this guy gave up eight hits. And by the way, good call. If you want to leave a voicemail, that's 617-396-7172. We got into a lot of the Red Sox stuff with JJ, but I do want to get into the Matt Dermody situation because I'm sure if you're on social media or if you're just watching the game, you've heard that he started the game for the Red Sox, gave up a couple of home runs to Jose Ramirez. But the story was two years ago, He tweeted, hashtag Pride Month. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will go to hell. This is not my opinion, but the hashtag truth. Read 1 Corinthians, and he gives a Bible verse. May we all examine our hearts, ask Jesus to forgive us, and repent all our sins. He followed that up because obviously that caused a lot of controversy with a tweet that said, I'm not homophobic as I stated in my tweet. I have love for all. The truth is love. So this is the guy that started for the Red Sox in this game on Thursday night. And here was Bloom's explanation for this. He talked to Sean McAdam of Mass Live. 
He said, quote, it's important to us that he had taken the tweet down because he removed the tweet after he put it out there and important why he had done it. I talked to him personally about that. And what he told me was that it really came down to two things. One, he didn't realize his words would be hurtful and he didn't want to hurt anybody. And when he realized that, he took it down. So first of all, Bloom is saying that Dermody didn't realize that his words were hurtful. How? He said homosexuals will go to hell. How could anyone not realize what you were saying there was going to be hurtful? That's the reason he put it out there, for it to be hurtful. That's what he did. So I just, I can't understand how Bloom saying that he didn't understand that it was going to be hurtful. How could Bloom actually buy that? Bloom is a smart guy. Whether or not you agree with his baseball decisions, and we've criticized him plenty on this show, but how he would think that that wasn't meant to be hurtful is just completely ridiculous. I don't believe Bloom when he says that. That's an absolute joke. So, by the way, Tuesday, if he does pitch again, which he's probably not going to be, is Pride Night at Fenway. I can't imagine he's going to pitch on Tuesday. He was not good in this game. He's never been a good pitcher. Bloom also said, the fact of the matter is we're committed to creating an inclusive environment. It's not right for us to police what people believe, end quote. So I would also counter with this to Bloom. It's okay to not want to have a guy represent your organization that tweets out anti-gay things. By your own admission, he didn't even realize people would be offended by this stuff. So I guess the idea that Heim Bloom comes up with is he didn't mean it. How could he not mean it? But Heim Bloom, this isn't all about trying to give this guy a second chance. This is about you don't need to have this guy represent your organization. Why do you need to do that? Nothing says you need to have Dermody on your team. So I thought that Bloom handled this incredibly poorly today. But let me ask you this question. So there's two possibilities here. So what we found out is the Red Sox, they didn't know about the tweet until after they signed him, okay? So they didn't know about it, and then they talked to them in spring training. So let me ask you this question. There's two possibilities here. Either the Red Sox, as they said, they didn't know about the tweet, which from my perspective, that's just unbelievably poor execution by the front office. If you didn't see this when you were vetting the player, and I understand the delete, the tweet was deleted, but if you didn't see this, you did a horrendous job actually vetting the guy. Like for you to not uncover this and stumble upon this, I don't know how that's possible if you actually vetted the player. Or the other thing here is, well, they are lying to us. I'll give High Bloom the benefit of the doubt. Like, I don't think the Red Sox actually saw this tweet and then decided or knew about this tweet and then signed him anyway. I can't imagine that would be the case because in 2023, those tweets are going to come back out eventually. So I cannot believe that Bloom actually saw those tweets. So the fact that they, when they were vetting this guy, they didn't find anything is just so bad by the front office. Like for a guy that is supposed to be smart running this organization, for you to not see that is unbelievable to me. And the other thing I would say is this, what is the point of this? This is a guy in Matt Dermody who basically has been an irrelevant pitcher in Major League Baseball. He's pitching in Japan. He's pitching all over the place. He's barely had a Major League career. So why even keep the guy on the team? I, just, I don't understand what the upside is. This is. And I'm not defending this. What he did was deplorable, obviously. Those tweets are deplorable. But I just don't understand why today you're defending this guy and you're 
defending why you kept him on the team. That's what Bloom had to do over the past two days, defend why he kept him on the team. Why? What's the upside of this? This guy is not a good player. I, I don't really understand what the possible upside of is keeping this guy on the team. And then the other portion to this is now prior to the game, Alex Cora is doing his media stuff and he has to answer questions about this. Why? So now you look at this team right now. Bloom has already put Alex Cora and a lot of people in a bad position because the rotation sucks. The defense is one of the worst in Major League Baseball. So your defense stinks. Your rotation is not good. Now you're having bullpen issues because they're overtaxed after the rotation has been so bad. And now on top of all that, you're in a really bad stretch. The Red Sox are playing really bad baseball right now. This is as bad as it's been for this team this season. And they're dealing with this distraction. Why? I don't understand the point of it. Why would you want this guy on the team? First of all, for the tweets in and of itself. But secondarily, why would you want to answer all these questions, have to defend this for a guy that is not good? It just, it's, I don't understand what the Red Sox are thinking. It almost reminds me of the Mitchell Miller situation, right? The Mitchell Miller situation where the Bruins had the players like Patrice Bergeron had to come out and say, hey, we don't want this guy around the organization, essentially is what he said. I mean, not direct quote, but basically Mitchell Miller was no longer part of the organization because of Patrice Bergeron coming out and saying that publicly, that people were upset in the organization. And if you want to talk about being inclusive, you can't have a guy like this on the team. And I just... And I don't want to make this just about baseball, but I don't understand the baseball portion of this. Why would you have this guy on the team considering he comes with all this baggage and he's not good? It just makes no sense to me whatsoever. All right, let's change gears to the Celtics for a second here. Let's get to an email and we bring in our producer, Jamie McClellan. Our email box is off the pike at gmail.com. Jamie, what's up, man? Uh, I'm doing okay a bit. Of a roller coaster, like you pointed out. I mean, excited for the Patriots season, but I'd rather not have to fast forward already to training camp and skip over this baseball season, but it looks like we may have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. This is it's getting ugly. I was excited about this team preseason. I never thought they were like the contender to win the World Series, but I thought they'd at least be relevant. We saw signs of it. The good news is you're going to get Duvall back, which would certainly mm-hmm. help, but the sale thing. I really do think the Sale injury had a huge impact on this team, where they knew that Chris Sale was back to being 85% of the guy that say he was pre-injuries, and they felt like they could depend on this guy every fifth day, and it's just a trickle-down effect now, where you have this guy coming up to pitch today in Dermody, where Heim Bloom is defending him left and right, or defending, keeping him on the team. You have the manager having to address these questions. It's just... It's a situation they don't need to be in. Imagine this, like the guy that pitched, who's not good, you have to do this whole thing for 36 hours defending the move. I I don't understand it. It's just bad business. Totally. I mean, and they have back-to-back bullpen games, basically. I mean, what's with that? And that guy they threw out last night, what, Murphy or whatever, he was great. Why didn't he pitch him today? I, I I don't get what they're up to right now. Baffling. Well, Murphy, they sent him down because he threw three and a third, so he wouldn't be available for a right. while. So I get it. They cleared up a good, roster though. spot. He was a, a, yeah, Mur- a he, he threw the ball spot. well. And look, this guy, he has not had a good minor league career, but he actually threw the ball well last <laughs> night. So we'll see if we see him again. Right. Well, we'll turn the gears to the Celtics. We have uh, an email in about the news that Chris Paul got released by the Suns. This is from Michael Breen. He writes... With the news that Chris Paul will be waived by Phoenix, should the Celtics take interest? Is there a better floor general in today's NBA except possibly LeBron James? We all know the his injury history 
but would it be worth a shot just to have someone come in and settle the team down and get the team into some sort of offensive set? Imagine having Paul come off the bench just to run the offense for those fourth quarter crunch minutes when the Celtics fall apart. Lord knows we don't need another point guard, but it's not crazy to think about. Uh, sure, the dollar figure would matter, but I'm sure Paul may just want to be somewhere where he's a shot at a title. The Celtics could certainly uh, limit his minutes during the regular season, keep him fresh, and maybe keep down the wear and tear long enough for a postseason run, which obviously has not happened recently. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of Paul to the Celtics? All right, Jamie, I would do it if the price is right. So mm-hmm. you look at him, he's coming off his 37-year-old season. He was not available for the Suns at the end of the postseason because he was dealing with a groin issue. We've seen this the past couple of years with Chris Paul. He's always banged up. He was dealing with a heel issue earlier in the season, played just 59 games. So the durability is going to be an issue. We also saw when he was supposed to be the number two guy with Phoenix two years ago in his 36-year-old season, he had 10 points in game seven. Him and Devin Booker lost to a team that basically had Luka Doncic, right? So if he accepts the role, and it looked like he sort of did that in Phoenix as the third or the fourth or the fifth guy, fine. The other thing I would say is this. The other teams linked to him, the Lakers, the Clippers, maybe going back to the Suns or Philly, feels like all those teams make more sense. Now, I understand the health thing that we mentioned, and you're going to be hoping that he's still healthy when you get to the postseason. But as you mentioned in the email there, as Mike Breen, other Mike Breen mentioned (laughs) that we can, you can, if you're the Celtics, limit his minutes. So here's one concern I have. The Celtics were 20, besides the injury stuff, the obvious, Celtics were 20th in pace. I believe they should be playing faster considering how athletic the team is. The Suns were 22nd. With Chris Paul, naturally with his age, he wants to set everything up. You're going to play slower. But here's the other thing. He did show an ability to catch and shoot this year where that's something he didn't do in the past, where catch and shoot threes this past season, 46 of 88, 52.3%, still has the mid-range game, short mid-rangers via cleaning the glass, 50%, that was in the 80th percentile, and he shot 46% on long mid-rangers. So by the price is right, I mean the minimum. Like if he wants to come (laughs) here for the minimum, if he thinks, hey, the Celtics are my best chance to uh, Mm -hmm. win a championship, fine. I would take Chris Paul. And I do think this, Jamie, think about it from this perspective. I've said that they need to move Brogdon or Smart. But also think about this, okay? When you're thinking about a guy like Chris Paul, having another guy that is 37 years old or having a guy that's 37, I guess Al's going to be 37 too, right? And a guy that is a genius level player, even if you don't love some of the bullshit he does, the foul drawing, all that, but just having that mind for your offense to, and I know you added Sam Cassell, of course, as we mentioned him on the coaching staff, but having that player that can talk to Tatum and can talk to Jalen Brown being like, let's do this here, let's do that there. I think he would be useful, especially I do believe that Brogdon or Smart, one of those two is going to be gone. And if Paul wants to come off the bench, perfect. I just... I don't see the stars aligning here. I see him ending up with one of the L.A. teams, whether it be the Lakers. I don't know if he'd want to go back to the Clippers, but say the Lakers play with LeBron, play with Anthony Davis, all that. I think that's way more likely than the Celtics situation. But if all those things lined up perfectly, why not? I would do it. I mean, it's not like you're saying, hey, Chris Paul, go win us games. It's, hey, can you hit a couple of threes? Can you set up the offense? Can you help our guys, right? Can you help grow these players as executing in the mm-hmm. half court. That's something Chris Paul could certainly do. So if the price is right, yeah, fuck it. Why not? I'm in. Jamie's all in. I was totally. Why not? I always liked him as a kid. But I think more than that, it's just, it'd be nice to get that kind of addition through free agency. And then, like you said, with Brogdon or someone, you could maybe trade him for a wing. It just, it just feels like a pretty nice 
little extra piece that you don't have to give up any assets for apart from some cash. Yeah, and let me be clear. I would not make any sort of trade. Like I no. saw Cowherd today saying that they should, should trade. Yeah, they <laughs> should trade Marcus Smart from now. Marcus Smart's got way more value than that. I'm not taking on Chris Paul for Marcus Smart. And like I said, I I believe that Smart or Brogdon's going to be yeah. gone, but I'm not making that sort of trade. But it was interesting to see this Chris Paul thing all of a sudden during the NBA Finals. Oh, Chris Paul, he's gone. He? I was like, oh. What do you think know, about uh, like how Tatum and Brown might react to him joining the locker room? Do you think they'd be fine with it? it definitely Tatum. Mm-hmm. Tatum was on J.J. Reddick's podcast. I, I can't even remember when it was, but he talked about Chris Paul and how he's like a master of like, they talk about the two for one and Chris Paul knows like the three for four. Like, I, I don't even remember what he was saying, but he was very complimentary of Jason, of Chris Paul. So I think Tatum would be on board and... Honestly, if Jalen Brown gets a Supermax, I don't care if he cares. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah sure. if they're paying Jalen Brown the Supermax, I don't care if he He's cares about Chris Ball being on the team. Yeah, as long as, Tatum's, as long as Tatum's cool with it, I'm cool with it. All right, but I, it, like I said, most likely scenario, I, I, I mean, I can't. Yeah. I think he ends up with the Lakers. That's what I think. I could be wrong, but I think he ends up with the Lakers. How many members of the Banana Boat has LeBron played with? He's played with Wade. <laughs> He's played with Carmelo. This would be it. This would be the last member of the banana boat that LeBron has not played with. He's there's, never played with Ian. There was that trade too, right? When he when they to the beat, Lakers. That, yeah, I remember that back with Kobe. Day. It was yeah. going to be Chris Paul and Kobe. He's I mean, come on. For ten years to get to LA. <laughs> yeah. Or the right by side the way, by the way, but by the time most people are hearing this, this is going to be game four of the NBA Finals coming up. Have you enjoyed the NBA Finals? For sure, man. I mean, I, I, I look. I watch some basketball, but seeing Jokic every night is something else. When the pressure's on. Just the moves so he makes good, around the hoop and just the, he's like a contortionist. He's very fun yeah. to watch. Yeah. This is, this is what I don't understand about like the touch. Yeah. His touch is so soft. Like he's missing, like these shots are landing on the rim every yeah. time they just they fall in. The right yeah. yeah. Like they sure. just fall right in. I mean, he's a, a basketball genius. I mean, 30, yeah. 20 and 10, like, That's, come on. I know. Otherworldly. Guy is ridiculous. And I mean, like Kendrick Perkins said all season long, he's a stat patter. Yeah, well, now Perk says that people should be talking about him more from the guy that was disparaging him all year, saying how he shouldn't be in the same conversation as Embiid as the MVP. Now Perk wants people to talk about him more. He's got a short memory, I guess. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Brian, talk soon. All right, remember, if you want to leave us an email, it's offthepike at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. We'll be back with you on Sunday. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.